All right. Well, we're really excited to have Amy Roselle speak to us this morning. Uh, if you don't know Amy, Amy and her husband John have been a part of the well for a long time. They have served in many capacities. We're super grateful for them uh, as we have learned a lot from both of them. Uh, Amy is the National Training Director for Crew. Uh, Crew is a worldwide ministry, focuses on lots of different wonderful work. Many of us know them for their work on the campus. We have people in the church who are involved in Crew, and Amy works with Crew and has for a number of years. As the training director, she trains teams around the world. How do you work cross-culturally? How do you value, love, and care for one another? when you're dealing with cultural differences and language difference and background difference. So we have asked Amy, come train us on this MLK weekend. We want to grow in this. Specifically, she's going to address this topic. Why does justice even matter? Why should it be important to us as a community, a congregation of Bible-believing Christians Why should we not let this go? Why should it be a continual thing that we pray about and care about and lean into? And so we're so excited to have our sister come teach us and share with us. Amy, thank you, sister. honor to be here today. This is my first time back at church since March. (laughs) So it feels a little surreal and really kind of fun. Like I'm kind of freaking out a little bit. I'm like, are people six feet apart? Am I okay? Uh, But it it feels great. So thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me uh, to the elders. It's just really good to be here. So I have spent the past 17 years in cross-cultural ministry both as a white woman serving under the leadership of culturally contextualized ministries to communities of color, as well as educating the majority on intercultural dynamics and missions. In this past week, I experienced a culmination of years of growing division within the body of Christ, surrounding the topics of race, ethnicity, and justice. Instead of coming together to hear one another out, For the sake of unity in the gospel, stances were taken, only furthering the division. So it is with an incredibly heavy heart that I stand here in front of you today. I want to ask you, Well Church, this morning to listen. The topic of justice comes packaged with far too many preconceived notions. My hope this morning is to present to you a different narrative as we walk through God's word and hear from those who have gone before us in hopes that our unity would be unquestionable. And I want to clarify something before we begin to look at God's word. God's story for humanity is one narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. As followers of Christ, we are called to both proclaim and live out his gospel. God's word, sorry, scripture tells us that we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light, and also to care for the widows and the poor. 
It is not one or the other. It is both and. So let's pray before we dive in. Father, as we gather and listen online, um, Lord, would you be with us? Would you speak to us? Um, Would you be here? Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts and minds? As we look at your word, would you challenge us? Would you move us forward in unity, in one purpose? Amen. Sorry, I keep moving this because I feel like I'm sucking it in. <laughs> Did anybody have that problem? Any of the people up here speaking? Okay, this is going to get weird. All right. <laughs> so God created humanity for a purpose. Unlike the rest of his creation, humans were different. Humans mirrored God's image to earth. He created a beautiful place for us to rule as image bearers in his earthly kingdom. But something happened. We wanted to choose for ourselves what was good and evil, what was right or wrong. We wanted the power to do those things apart from God. We were not satisfied with being in his likeness. We wanted to be him. So we listened to the enemy, and we were banished from Eden until one day God would rescue us from our sin-stained humanity. And our sin, well, it did a lot. Multiple times throughout our story, God graciously redirects us and gives us hints at his plan of rescue. In Genesis 1.28, he tells the newly banished Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So we went. But instead of filling the earth, sin and evil prevailed. And God in his mercy chose to save us through one of his servants, Noah. And again later after this flood, where he takes Noah's family and brings them to safety, he says the same thing to them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in Genesis 9-1. But of course, we didn't listen. Because we don't like to listen, right? So we come to a rather interesting story about humanity's disobedience in Genesis 11. Here humans have chosen not to fill the earth as they were commanded, but instead they stayed together, and they settled in one place, and the following unfolds in verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the whole earth was filled, uh, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks for mortar and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick and stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Now, two times prior to this story, God told his rebellious humans to do something. But now, not only do they disobey, but they tried to make a name for themselves. And they tried to build a tower to the heavenlies where they believed the gods to reside. It's pretty big, huh? So here humans decided they wanted to be great. Instead of proclaiming the name of their creator, they wanted to make a name for themselves. 
Like Adam and Eve, they wanted to define life on their own terms. But God in his mercy gives them another chance by confusing their language and forcing them to disperse and fulfill the commandment he priorly gave to them. Genesis 11, 9 says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So it is here, after these in-your-face disobedient acts of humans, that God introduces us to the method in which he will bring back his creation to his vision in Eden. A people for his own, who will rule and reign with him on earth. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3 reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in this passage, God makes a promise to Abram. He says to him that he will bless him, make his name great, and make him a great nation. This is a huge contrast to the failed attempt at Babel. Instead of pursuing his own greatness, God bestows it upon him, giving him blessing and honor. And this blessing is for a purpose. In verse 2 it says, so that you will be a blessing. Now, the Hebrew word for nation here means people or nation. It is used to reference both Hebrew and non-Hebrew people groups throughout the Old Testament. So when we see the word nation in Scripture, it is not the same geopolitical understanding that we have today. So we need to put that aside and not think of that. So nations were people groups, ethnically and culturally unique, the natural result of Babel. So God will make Abram into a great people group, we know them as the Israelites, who will be a blessing to the nations. The name of the creator God was to be proclaimed through them to bless the earth. So let's look at verse 3 again. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the Hebrew word for family here means clan, tribe, people, or nation, or family. So God promises to Abram that he will make him into a great nation so that they will bless every tribe, clan, family, people, and nation on earth. God was going to redeem an ethnically and culturally diverse people through this man, Abram's descendant, Jesus. And God's plan was to redeem and rescue people from each of these new nations that resulted from Babel. Jesus would atone for the sin of rebellious humanity and restore them to his family, creating for himself a divine family who would inherit the kingdom. Now, in Genesis 17, God renames Abram Abraham, which means the father of a multitude or many, telling Abraham that nations and kings will come from you. So God puts in place his plan of rescue and redemption, for these nations through a future descendant of Abraham. This descendant, Jesus, is now going to draw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. 
the creation of an ethnically and culturally diverse divine family who will help bring about his kingdom on earth and return to his vision in Eden. So we see, we see this plan of rescue in the first book of the Bible, and then we see it fulfilled in the last. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Eternity will be a diverse and beautiful expression of God's image bearers, worshiping the Lamb. Ethnic groups, tribes, languages will all be present. It will not be a a homogenous group of people. We will hear God's name praised in language we never knew existed. We will see him worship in traditions reflective of his children's earthly cultures. It will be a sight like we have never seen or can imagine, and it is going to be amazing. It will be amazing. Get some water here. Hold on a second. Get froggy. All right. Now, this new divine family that has been created is marked by clear truths of who they are and their purpose on earth. So let's go ahead and look at a few of those attributes. In Luke 18, 29 through 30, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. So one of the truths of this new divine family is a shift in where our allegiance lies. Christ's kingdom purposes will be above everything else in one's life. And this family's primary focus shifts because they have been given a new identity. Now, if I had time, I would unpack this identity piece much more in-depthly. Because too often, identity in Christ is translated as conformity to an earthly cultural identity and narrative. Identity in Christ is not assimilation to a specific earthly culture or way of life. There is not one way in which the gospel is to be packaged and presented. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms cultures to reflect this newfound faith in Jesus. It is not the messenger's job to judge and instill a way of life. Western Christianity has much to repent of for our cultural exportation in the name of gospel proclamation. But that discussion is for another time. For our purposes today, we'll focus on our shared identity in Christ. So this new identity is instilled upon the follower of Jesus through adoption. Ephesians 1 states that that in love we were predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters. And this adoption gives us new citizenship in the household of God. Later in chapter 2, it says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens in the household of God. Beautiful truths that often do not resonate deep enough to affect one's application. Galatians 3, 25 through 29 reads, But now the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this passage tells us that the followers of Jesus have been brought into God's household as an equal, according to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis. We are descendants of the nations that resulted of Babel, adopted and brought into God's divine family as equal members. Earthy attributes such as our nation of origin or our social status are no longer our primary identifying factor. Our identity in Christ is. And we are given a clear purpose. Revelations 5, 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. If you were slain, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations is fulfilled when Jesus purchases by his blood people from every tribe, language, and nation to reign with him on earth. So though we come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, when we choose to follow Jesus, we are adopted into God's divine family. The Holy Spirit bonds us together in unity. Our spiritual family becomes our primary people. We are unified in Christ. Our shared faith and inheritance in Christ means we have the same purpose on earth, a divine family working together to bring the kingdom of God to this planet. Now, this is not to deny or throw out culture. As humans filled the earth, we were scattered across a diverse landscape and topography. We adapted and adjusted to each of these new areas we found. Some would learn to live in hot deserts and others frozen tundras. We would learn to build dwellings out of various resources to withstand constant rain or harsh winter storms. We would discover different plants to eat and animals to hunt and develop new customs and ways of life to thrive in the area of the earth that we had filled. Culture as we know it was created. Now let's come back to Genesis. Now in the garden, Satan told Eve that bearing God's image wasn't enough. Why not decide for ourselves what is right or wrong? At the Tower of Babel, bearing God's image was not enough. Instead, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Look, see how great we are. Aren't we awesome? Look at all the things we can do. Humans wanted power and status. The creation always wanted to be like the creator on their own terms. So as culture was created, each of these new cultures reflected the beauty of God and his glory. Yet each of them were marred greatly by sin. Throughout time, instead of submitting to the one true God, humanity wanted their name to be great. People groups began to view themselves as superior to others. We we went to war and committed horrific evil towards other image bearers for the sake of power and wealth. To make the name of our own people known. We dehumanized and stripped people of the image of God in which they bore. Ethnocentrism is a term used to describe the act of evaluating and placing the worth of another culture against the values and customs of your own culture. It is, in essence, viewing one's ethnicity and culture as superior to another. 
and humans became incredibly ethnocentric. Because our way is the right and proper way. So when someone views themselves as superior, it becomes easy to dehumanize someone and view them as less than. It is how European slave traders justified chaining humans and selling them as cargo. It is how the Turks tortured and killed Armenian children for sport. It is how the Japanese brutally raped women and killed children in the Nanjing massacre. It is how the Nazis justified torturing and killing millions of Jewish people and how the Houthi slaughtered their Tutsi neighbors. When we view ourselves as better and greater than, we no longer see people as image bearers of God. And well, at that point, we can just justify anything. So let's bring it a little bit closer to home. It's how we justify boarding schools that strip Native American children of their culture and dignity. It's how separate but equal became the mantra of the white American during the height of Jim Crow. And it's how we justified interning 120,000 Japanese Americans in World War II. It is a disease that has affected humanity since the garden. We fought and continue to fight countlessly to rule and reign over one another. Caste and class systems have perpetuated injustice for thousands of years all over the world. There were those who would have everything and those who would never have anything. People would starve while others lived in gluttony. Human brokenness screams from every corner of the globe. A planet where financial profit reigns over people. Well, children are abused. Women are viewed as toys for pleasure. Where the color of one's skin defines your worth in society and people die of hunger every day. Part of the calling and command of the adopted child of God is to help bring God's kingdom to this broken planet. A kingdom where people are treated as image bearers of the most high God, equal in value and worth. Where children and widows are cared for, where the marginalized are fought for where instead of trying to reign and rule over one another, we love and care for one another. As children of God, when we see evil prevailing, when we see injustice, our hearts should be grieved with pain, and our love for God and his kingdom should move us to action. In 1929, Dietrich Bonhoeffer left Germany to study and serve in New York City. And shortly after his arrival, he did something that was very out of the norm at the time. Instead of sitting under the teaching of seminary professors and well-known church leaders, he chose to sit under the teachings of a black pastor named Dr. Adam Clayton Powell Sr. of Abyssinian Baptist Church. And it was under the teachings of Dr. Powell that Bonhoeffer said for the first time he experienced the gospel both preached and lived out in obedience to God's commands in scripture. Dr. Powell was well known for speaking against racial injustice. Bonhoeffer immersed himself in the African-American community, experiencing the gospel in a fresh new way. The testimonies of the suffering of fellow believers, his divine family, and their cause for racial justice forever changed him. Before his time in New York City, see, Bonhoeffer didn't see 
the acts of the growing Nazi rule as injustice as they were. In fact, that's part of the reason why you decided to bounce out and leave. But it was through the relationship with those experiencing inequality that he was enlightened to what was happening around him. Bonhoeffer went on to fight for God's kingdom by boldly preaching against the Third Reich, advocating that Christians stand up against tyranny and count the cost of following Christ as a worthy endeavor, even if it meant losing their life. He famously said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. To speak, to not speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Bonhoeffer was executed in a concentration camp two weeks before the Allied forces freed those inside. So just like Bonhoeffer was unwilling to ignore the injustices around him, we must not ignore those around us. For many of us, when we see injustice, we do things like volunteer at pregnancy resource centers and work to end abortion. We become foster parents and care for the vulnerable in society. We raise money to help end human trafficking, and we serve the physical needs of the houseless community. We are grieved by injustice, and we are motivated to act. So how much more, then, should we be grieved when parts of our divine family is suffering at the hands of injustice? God's heart grieves when he watches his children suffer. And the suffering should deeply impact the rest of the family as well. When, our, when one member of our divine family hurts, we should all hurt. When our spiritual family is persecuted in foreign countries, we support them. We go to them. We pray for them. The values of God's kingdom compel us to do something. But when members of our divine family here in the United States are experiencing racial injustice, pain and suffering at the hands of society and culture. Instead of being grieved, we often explain it away. We don't want to feel the pain of lynchings, daily discrimination, and the fear of our children not coming home because their life was taken by those who swore to protect them. We can't possibly try and understand what it feels like to be asked over and over again, where are you from? No, really, where are you from? Because you don't look like me, so you can't be an American. Instead of pressing in and trying to understand the experience of our brothers and sisters, our allegiance quickly shifts. It's just from the people of God to whatever and whoever else we want to align ourselves with. All too quickly, our allegiance shifts to a political party a movement, a well-known religious leader and his teachings. Or perhaps our country becomes a God in which we worship and the values we perceive it offers from either political side we want to bring to the world. We must be the greatest. Let us make a name for ourselves. Sounds a lot like Babel to me. On December 7, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, launching the United States into World War II. Fear of Americans of Japanese descent had already begun to spread, and this act of war solidified it. 
Just one month prior, on November 1st of 1941, the Munson Report determined that the majority of Japanese Americans were loyal to the United States and would pose no threat if Japan were to attack the U.S. But in spite of this report, Attorney General Francis Vidal authorized search warrants to any Japanese American they thought might be a potential threat. The FBI found nothing of concern in any of the houses they searched. Yet still, on February 19th, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, authorizing the military to remove citizens from any area without trial or hearing. Just a few weeks later, the process of removing Japanese Americans from Washington, Oregon, California, and Arizona began. People were taken to relocation centers across the western seaboard. One month later, on March 18th, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9012, establishing the War Relocation Authority. This authority builds camps and interns 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent. Mind you, the Immigration Act of 1924 had ended all immigration from Japan. Because no immigrants entered the U.S. for almost 20 years, it is estimated that 80,000 of the interned were second-generation American-born U.S. citizens. Fear of the other motivated this act. Where are you from? Wait, what's your nationality? American. No, you're Japanese. Why don't you go back to where you came from? We hear a lot of that today, too. So 13 years earlier, in 1929, a white man by the name of Emory Andrews became the first English-language pastor at the Japanese Baptist Church in Seattle, Washington. When the war came and the Japanese Americans were incarcerated in 1942, Emory continued to serve his congregation. When his spiritual family were forcibly removed from their homes and businesses, he helped to store their belongings in the church gymnasium. And he took daily trips to visit his congregants while they were incarcerated at the Puyallup Assembly Center. When the Americans of Japanese descent were moved from the Puyallup Assembly Center to Minidoka, Idaho, Emory Andrews had a decision to make. He could stay in Seattle surrounded with comfort, stability, familiarity, free from the injustice happening to not only his spiritual family, but the entire Japanese-American community in Seattle. Or he could forsake those things and align himself with his spiritual family. So Emory Andrews packed up his wife and children and moved to Idaho to be by his people. He rented a large house 15 miles from the internment camp. His family used the spare rooms to house any Japanese Americans coming to and from the camp for settlement, as well as any visitors, both white friends of the interned and Japanese American servicemen visiting their families while they're incarcerated. It is said that the Andrews family averaged 167 visitors a month. Almost every day, Emory went to the camps to serve as church members, taking his children with him on weekends. He made 56 trips to and from Seattle to bring supplies to his spiritual family and care for their properties and businesses on their behalf while they were incarcerated. 
As white allies, both he and his family received regular threats and were called names by the local community. Despite being harassed, he continued to be vocal, declaring the injustices of the internment of those of Japanese descent. When the war ended, Emery moved back to Seattle with his church. He helped the returnees with housing and jobs, and he retired from his position in 1955. And he died in 1976 at the age of 81. So Emery could have easily taken a pastoral position at another church. He could have stood by while his brothers and sisters in Christ were rounded up and placed in horse stalls and called an enemy of his country. He could have easily escaped the pain and injustice of their experience. But Emery Andrews knew that his spiritual family was his primary people. He knew that his shared faith and inheritance in Christ with his spiritual family was to work to bring God's kingdom to earth. And what was being done to the Japanese American was not reflective of God's kingdom. We should be grieved and God's kingdom values should compel us to act when we see members of our divine family suffering at the hands of systemic and societal injustice. Colossians 3, 12 through 17 reads, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As God's family, we're to be kind, loving, forgiving, compassionate, and bearing one another's burdens. Doing everything in the name of Jesus for his kingdom. Kindness is not berating each other on social media. It is entering in. Loving is not explaining away someone's pain to justify your beliefs and actions. It is, off, it is offering your shoulder to cry on. Forgiving is not canceling someone because they aren't as woke as you. It is having a conversation about the pain you have caused one another. Compassion is not indifference. It is empathy. Humility is not pride. It's doing the work of the gospel without needing to put your name on it. Bearing one another's burdens is not fighting to rule and reign. It's setting aside your privilege so that someone else can be heard. We are living in a time of extreme division in the divine family. Churches are falling apart. Christian organizations are splitting down the middle. And young people are leaving the faith in large numbers. And all of this while the world is watching us. 
Jesus said, to the, said that the world would know who we are, that we are his disciples, by our love for one another. And I don't know about you, but I don't see a lot of love right now. The digital age has made it easy to glean information from a variety of sources. Our access to information and knowledge is unprecedented. But yet, far too often, we are pulled in either one direction or another, not taking the time to vet what we read and hear through the word of God. Instead of working together to bring God's kingdom to earth and proclaiming his gospel, we are building towers right and left. Aligning ourselves elsewhere. So where does your allegiance lie? Is it with a movement? Is it with a political party? Are you living for comfort, for justification? Or are you living for the one true God, his kingdom, and our divine family? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen.